Good evening. The people's princess is dead across the country, across the world. Millions are trying to come to terms with the awful tragedy of Diana's untimely death. If you weren't around when it happened, it was hard to miss last week's 25th anniversary of Princess Diana's death when those incredible images of the masses of mourners all over the world hit the news again. And let's face it, looking back on it, people's reactions were pretty strange. By bus, by tube, public transport, most of them have walked here, some have come in limousines. They've come anyway, just to be here. I suppose an outpouring was expected. That it was so big amazed everybody. They didn't know this woman, they had never spoken to this woman, they had never been within 20 yards of her, and yet their grief was real. And people mock it now, thinking some kind of madness overcame us. There was a collective psychotic episode where the country went hysterical. I have to tell you, at the time, it didn't feel like that. It felt like something much more admirable, actually. And that admirable response is something called spontaneous memorialisation. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, we look at how big events like Diana's death can trigger a mass reaction and how social media has changed the way we mourn even people we don't know. I'm talking to Susan Wardell, who lectures in social anthropology at the University of Otago. What I've found interesting in the last week or so is that there's still so much written about Diana. There is, yes, it seems to be a topic which has just held people's attention for 25 years. What do you think it is? I think there's so much about the way that the media and the public responded to her during her lifetime, which kind of established that fascination. But certainly when you add a very untimely and tragic death to that, it becomes part of the story as well. And do you still use her story in your lectures? Yes, when I teach on memorialisation and how that can become politicised, that's the primary example that I still draw on. And it's remained one of the most famous examples, really, of the phenomenon we call spontaneous memorialisation. And what exactly is that spontaneous memorialisation? Well, a lot of the ways we um, engage with death are quite often prescribed by different institutions in formal ways in terms of how do we mourn, where, um, when, with whom, and are using what kind of rituals or language or symbols. Um, it can be quite prescribed. So when we say spontaneous memorialization, we're referring to something that the public or groups of people might do kind of in a more improvised way and outside of something that's been set up in a top-down manner that people would just attend. So it's kind of when the public themselves drives a response. And it's really most famously characterized by things that happen on the street So pilgrimages that people make to a particular place and shrines that might emerge at places of significance where people are bringing tributes and becomes this hugely um, visible, prominent public symbol of mourning. Mm, So it's kind of informal because I just saw a photo actually from last week of a shrine in Paris. Flowers, candles and photos were left above the entrance to the tunnel where the people's princess lost her life on August 31st, 1997. You know, it's kind of interesting that people are still interested or feel something for someone who 
they never knew whose life was so removed from theirs and they may not even have been alive when she died. You know, people people fall in love with the particular ideal or story or connect with, you know, a person that they, they never had an opportunity to connect with as an individual. They seem to connect with um, something that person represents and it becomes this, sometimes we call it a parasocial relationship, a kind of one-sided relationship where there's a huge amount of kind of emotional investment on one side and then the other person might, might never know they exist. Um, it's interesting that you mention about Diana's life being so far removed from most people. And that's certainly true as someone who entered the royal family and left the royal family. But in other ways, it was a point of connection to the royals that was perhaps closer to other people's realities than had been enabled before in that they weren't just responding to Diana's death. They were responding to the monarchy's response to Diana's death. The absence of a flag at half-mast at Buckingham Palace upset many people, and the absence of the royal family, who've remained at Balmoral throughout, has dismayed others. There was a sense they were counterbalancing, providing the kind of recognition and respect that wasn't being provided formally. And of course, some of that did shift and there was a hugely attended um, and publicised funeral for Diana in the end. But particularly in those earlier days, had this moral quality of they were, you know, writing what wasn't being offered. Arguably, one of the biggest impacts she had on this country was to make the royal family a little bit more relaxed, a little more down to earth, perhaps even a bit more human. Diana came from, you know, a more um, a more humble or, or familiar um, life outside the royals first and took on this kind of role of the people's princess. She was pretty, she was vulnerable, she was shy, she was warm. We hadn't seen a royal like this ever. Uh, one wonders if one is being told the whole truth at the moment. Stephen, I have to interrupt there. Um, because uh, within the last few moments, the Press Association in Britain, citing unnamed British sources, has reported that Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. Do you remember where you were when she died? Because it, it was one of those moments where people have a very strong memory of what they were doing and where they were. It is. Um, yeah, and I do. I was um, around seven at the time, and I remember being just swinging on the swing in my little garden in um, suburban Dunedin, and I remember the neighbour coming in um, in quite a flap to talk to my mother and say, you know, Diana's just died. And my mum's own reaction is kind of ingrained in my memory there, but it's quite fascinating in that when in some of my own research, which is focused on responses to the Christchurch mosque attack, I was speaking to people who had experienced that as a similar moment of, you know, where were you when it happened? Um, but even some of the much younger people there who weren't alive when Diana died um, referred back to Diana as a similar example of um, these kind of world-changing moments. So it has had this kind of, you know, outstanding significance that's carried on since. And, and you say in, in your article that you wrote on Newsroom, that if she died today, it would be different because of the power of social media? Yes, I think that's one factor we can think about. Um, 
there were only about 10% of households in Britain at the time that had the internet. And that was, you know, a different version of the internet pre-social media when Diana died. So that just wasn't really a factor in how people received the news, how people organized their responses, um, or what type of responses they were able to make to the death of this important public figure. Um, whereas today, the patterns that we see in other forms of memorialization and the type of thing that I study um, is that social media is very heavily involved in how people get news about happenings like that and how they organize their responses. Um, and that it also becomes not just a kind of vehicle for people to plan a response that is, you know, based in a physical location. People actually do their memorial activities online as well as or instead of um, going to a physical memorial. Is it as meaningful though? Well, it's always interesting to think about that because so many people critique social media as a kind of shallow vision of response. But certainly in my own research, it's not shallow at all. It would be dangerous of us really to kind of brush it aside as something that's less than. I think we can do both and acknowledge that social media has some limitations and some kind of performative qualities to it. But at the same time, those things can be part of communicating to each other about what matters to us and the the accumulation of all the little actions that people can take, which might be small actions, but that are visible in this really public way when you put them online, that can really accumulate into a bigger social conversation and, you know, bigger modes of change even, especially when we are thinking about responses to deaths that might have a political component to them. Yeah, but you you know, you talked about these interactions, the social media interactions. You know, some people might see them as shallow or trendy, creating some sort of yeah, popular morning or pop morning. But then there's something like Black Lives Matter, uh, where social media pa- played a huge role. What started as a hashtag in 2013 went from trending on social media to becoming one of the largest movements in American history. When 17-year-old Trayvon Martin died at the hands of George Zimmerman in 2012, protests sprung up around the country, demanding everything from changes to Florida's stand-your-ground laws to gun control. Organisers of the Black Lives Matter protests in New Zealand are calling on the government to condemn police violence in the U.S., and disarm the police in New Zealand. We're seeing social media as something which is, you know, cheaper and more accessible for more people to communicate than it was in the times of, you know, when newspaper or television was was the only way of putting out a kind of single authoritative account of happenings. Now we have many people's voices that can chart things that are happening, that can share information or calls to action. But there's also a, a broader kind of social sense where, Um, the movement takes on its own momentum and people can have these quite deep conversations about why the world is the way it is and how they want it to be. And that can unfold in quite often quite commonplace language or quite short form online, but it's no, no less meaningful and perhaps even more meaningful because it is happening among the general population, you know, in these everyday kind of conversations um, and involving more people. So I think mm. that's just as meaningful as something that happens in very formal language in a, in a formal setting. Is it? I mean... Is it as meaningful as as the people 25 years ago going up to uh, the gate at Kensington Palace where Diana lived and putting flowers there? 
Outside the three royal palaces, more than a million bouquets have been laid. Florists throughout the country have had to rely on huge shipments of imported flowers to replenish stocks running out by the hour. I mean, you know, pressing an emoji button, is it really as meaningful? It seems, you know, there's a lot less effort that goes mm, into that. There is, and it's it's always worth factoring in that kind of degree of effort that people put in. But that's not the only way to measure something that's meaningful, I think. And what I've certainly found myself when I was researching people's responses to the mosque shootings in New Zealand is in focusing on what they did online was that people were actually quite aware of those kind of limitations themselves and and reflecting a lot on what they could do that would be enough or that would be significant or meaningful in those spaces. And for those who aren't taking to the streets, one way of making their voice heard is through social media, of course. But how do you know you are using your platform in the right way. And of course, we can acknowledge that people don't only push an emoji. Many people are doing, you know, both and and all sorts of things. But I think the main thing is to see that even if it is a more fleeting action, it still has a thought and an intention behind it. And in news just to hand, the police say they are responding to a critical incident in Deans Avenue, Christchurch. The news out of Christchurch is not good. There has been a serious firearms incident at a mosque. Horror in Christchurch this afternoon after shootings at two mosques in the city. There are reports of multiple injuries and fatalities. Shoulder to shoulder in Hagley Park. This was a show of unity that couldn't be further from the mayhem and terror unleashed just metres from here last Friday. Thousands of devout Muslims came. Behind them, an estimated 15,000 others wanting to show their support. The mosque attacks, you, you have studied that in detail. What mm. did you make of the you know, spontaneous memorialisation there. I think what's amazing about how things unfolded uh, after the mosque attacks, we're looking at a situation there where there's violence committed by a person who in many ways resembles the majority of New Zealand. We have this this white person who's committing violence against this minority group, a minority religious and ethnic community. The way that the public was able to connect with or identify that, it wasn't necessarily a given that they would be able to connect with and identify with um, this Muslim community, especially given all the many racist and um, simplifying and sometimes very inaccurate stereotypes about Muslims that have plagued New Zealand society and the world for many decades and, in fact, many hundreds of years. So I think the public's response was a kind of attempt to counterbalance that reality to even more loudly stake their position as siding with this community of victims rather than with the terrorist who in more obvious ways looked like them and was like them. So that that kind of delicate counterbalance um, was part of why people perhaps responded so so loudly and vocally and publicly to really, really show that they did stand with the Muslim community. They are us. The person who has perpetuated this violence against us is not. The other thing that you've that you've looked at is crowdfunding, the phenomenon of crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And how, yeah, I mean, how it's become so common. Yeah, crowdfunding is another interesting phenomenon when we think about the digital, as we've been talking about, which is a place where people can respond to other people's suffering. You know, we encounter these stories of um, individuals and families and groups of people who are in need, and we have these choices about how to respond to the person in front of us. Normally, when you think of India and Pakistan, the first thing that comes to mind is rivalry, but they say nothing brings people together like a tragedy, uh, with one third of Pakistan submerged underwater and 33 million people impacted by the catastrophic floods. The Sikh community of New Zealand has joined hands with Pakistani diaspora uh, to help raise relief funds. A Jewish community in the United States has donated nearly $1 million to the victims of the Christchurch mosque attacks. That's a kind of very real moral response. Um, And usually when there are these larger collective tragedies as well, like the mosque attack, it becomes another one of those places that people who might not have a personal connection, might not be able to get out and do something in person, might be generally feeling affected but quite helpless. Um, It gives them a place to do something, even if it's something we might critique as, you know, as having limitations in what it can actually achieve. It's an action people can take, and so they often do, and they can become quite viral crowdfunding campaigns. And you note that in New Zealand, Give a Little is a charity, so so they don't actually make any money from it. But GoFundMe in the US is for profit. Yeah, I think that's something not many people would realise is that the model we have with Give a Little is um, somewhat unusual being a non-profit. So um, they certainly host a lot of our Um, different forms of crowdfunding, whether that's for individuals who need help with health needs or charities that are running some kind of um, fundraiser or whether that's a a larger scale response such as when victim support was crowdfunding to be able to respond to the mosque attacks. Um, But the same type of things um, globally often happen on GoFundMe and they take a percentage of all the profits. So they actually have a lot of... um, a lot of motivation to push people or encourage people to use their platform to kind of channel these charitable acts. And we did see that a lot um, during COVID as well, is that many individuals and businesses who were in very tight situations because of the pandemic um, were using these types of platforms to seek help and receive donations. But subsequently, the platforms made quite a lot of money too. With that crowdfunding... Do, do you see examples where people actually take advantage of this spontaneous spontaneous memorialisation and, and, well, I guess try to make money out of it in some way? I think we do see that not just on crowdfunding platforms but on social media generally when there is a, a tragedy um, or an event that's capturing the public interest Um, there can be people being opportunistic about that. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference a little bit. A New Jersey couple who helped raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for a homeless man, well, that couple is now facing accusations that they use that money on themselves. 
And this morning, a judge is demanding answers. And certainly after the mosque attacks, just to go back to that example, um, there were many different people with small businesses or larger businesses who were giving donations on behalf of their business, including the business name, doing certain types of fundraisers where a certain you know percentage of things sold would go, go back to the victims. Um, and it can be quite hard to disentangle how much the intent there is is genuine and how much of that is a kind of promotional opportunity for the business or um, whether there's both of that. Um, but, you know, human, human nature is, is very varied in that sense and sometimes people aren't aware even of, of what they're doing themselves. They're just kind of knee-jerk reaction to something that no one saw coming mm. um, and that was unprecedented and muddling their way through what's a right and good response to that. But certainly what interests me in my research is that um, they do have those conversations quite openly. It's not behind the scenes, but you actually see people talking to each other about that online as well and saying, you know, what, was that a good response? I'm critiquing this response. I'm doing it this way. I didn't like the way you did it. So it's all quite out in the open and you can actually trace the process of people working out between them over the days and weeks what is a good response or an effective response or a respectful response. And they certainly police each other. Hmm. So um, it's not so much top down, but certainly like if you do anything online and other people don't find it appropriate, you know about it pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, stepping back and looking at our behaviours, people's reactions, taking the flowers to the gates of Kensington Palace seems seems kind of weird now, doesn't it? It can certainly seem weird with a little bit of distance of time, but just even that little moment of reflection. Um, but as a as a social anthropologist who studies humans, I can affirm that a lot of what we do is weird, and actually most of it, and even the things that we're um, quite familiar with doing on a day to day basis. Um, when you step back, it's you know not very much of what we do is just about kind of the rational biological needs of our existence. Humans have this tendency to lay layers of meaning on everything we do. It's the most normal thing of all, if you boil it down, for humans to respond to each other. The fact that people kind of caught this um, this feeling, this tide of feeling that came partly from the media and partly from seeing other people around them doing it and um, just speaks to the fact that you know, we live in this world together, we respond to each other and with each other um, and sometimes that accumulates to the scale of millions of people responding but even on a more everyday scale um, we're not the rational beings we like to think we we are emotional beings and we're social beings so Mm. it can look weird on paper but it's actually a pretty normal part of being human the things we think of as individual things or personal things or interior things like grief and like emotion, they're always embedded in a social context. So for a social scientist like me, um, we can learn a lot from studying them and looking at patterns of that and thinking about how that very emotional response actually does relate to the social context or the political context. We can see, you know, what matters to people, what they care about, what they're pushing for or pushing against in the world. I think we saw that in Diana's death as well, that people were kind of voting for the type of royals they wanted or the Mm. type of world they wanted when they insisted on marking Diana's death. And we certainly saw that after the mosque attack as well, when people were, you know, being very public about 
what type of world they wanted, that they did want this more inclusive, welcoming world that was safe for difference and diversity. And they said that loudly through these gestures that ultimately weren't just about showing their grief about these individual lives, but were saying something about the world they wanted to live in. So it can be a powerful thing to take seriously, um, human mourning. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Susan Woodell. Kakite anō. Thank you.